Before you get too comfortable, I invite you to stand as we read our text. We are working our way through verses 8 through 13. We'll finish this this morning, and we are calling this the account of the apostates as Jude is giving us this account. And follow along as I read for us the text beginning in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Jude, and I guess myself as well, have painstakingly sought to paint a vivid picture of the presence and the practice of apostates within the church. The present practice and uh, uh, the present presence and practice of apostates. Remember that apostates are those who have fallen away from the faith. Jude is describing very, uh, we might say, hyperactive apostates, those whose intent is to undermine the Christian faith. They have come into the church, crept in unnoticed, as we read in verse 4. They are seeking to pull others away. The apostates described by Jude are those who have renounced their allegiance to Christ. They've denied him as their only master and Lord. They're committed not to the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints, seeking not the praise of Christ for the well-being of believers, but rather are self-seeking and self-serving. And what makes apostates so dangerous is that they use the very same words as do the rest of us Christians. They possess a facade of faithfulness, and yet they truly are the faithless, leading others down a path of condemnation. This morning we come to our final point in this section of verses, verses 8 through 13. We've considered uh, the, the different authority of these men. They have, a, they have this deceptive authority. Rather than the word of God, they appeal to dreams and, and extra-biblical authority. We have seen a different attitude of the apostates They're instinctual, like unreasoning animals. That is, they're unable to comprehend the things of the Spirit because they do not possess the Spirit. And we have noted the different ambition of apostates as they pursue selfish gain rather than making it their ambition to please the Lord. And that brings us today to our final point, and that which I've labeled the attributes 
of apostates, the distinguishable attributes of the apostates. In verses 12 through 13, we find Jude offering his readers a fivefold description of the attributes, these characteristics of apostates. Here are the five attributes believers must be on guard for if you're earnestly contending for the faith. Here are five attributes that we must guard against seeing creep into our lives in any manner or form. One of the things that I would have you notice as we work through verses 12 through 13 is that Jude's list is progressive in nature. It moves us from what we might say bad to worse, ending with eternal doom, this black darkness that is forever. Well, let's look at these fivefold descriptions this morning, beginning with the first one that I've entitled that apostates are dangerously deceptive. They're dangerously deceptive. Notice what Jude says again. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. And Jude begins by referencing that which had become a quite common feature among the early church congregations. The language that is here is perhaps a little bit unusual to us. We don't tend to refer to our gatherings together as love feasts. It has this kind of a weird sense to it, but that's what they were called. And very literally, the phrase translated love feast means love feast. It means a feast wherein love and affection and communion take place. From what we learn in the scriptures, such love feasts were a regular part of church gatherings uh, and they included things such as instruction where the word of God was proclaimed. They included encouragement. We see that in Hebrews 10 where we are to encourage one another. It included confrontation. See to it, brethren, that there not be found in any one of you a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How would you like to be in a church that confronted sin like that? Well, we ought to be. They took care of one another, and we see a number of references to that. Such love feasts might best be reflected in our modern day, our modern day, this church's experience of what we call our pot providence meals held after we've had our worship service and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. For the early church, the congregation would gather to worship, They would hear the preaching, proclamation of the word of God. They would celebrate communion, the Lord's table together, and then they would share a common love for one another by partaking of a meal together. So when Jude speaks of these love feasts, he has this picture in mind, a large group of people coming together, anxious to hear God's word, anxious to worship the Lord together, anxious to have that time to have camaraderie with one another while eating a meal. If we're going to appreciate what Jude is communicating, we need to understand a very important feature of Middle Eastern culture, and it's called table fellowship. When you eat with someone in a Middle Eastern culture, it means you have been accepted. You have been regarded as a friend. If you thought for a moment that you did not like the person that has invited you to eat, or you thought that the person you might wish to invite to eat might be your enemy, if you thought you might betray that person or the person you're inviting might betray you, guess what you would never do? You would never sit down and have a meal with such a person. 
We see an example of this in the Old Testament with the treachery of Ahithophel against David. Remember that Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted advisors. We read that in 2 Chronicles 27. David had invited Ahithophel often and entertained him at his table. And yet Ahithophel conspired with his son Absalom against David and had a coup attempt that's recorded in 2 Samuel 15. And it seems that there's a reference to this treachery when David wrote in Psalm 41.9, he said, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's a reflection of the, of the strain and the difficulty that comes, the, the inconceivable nature that you would sit down and have a meal with someone who didn't like you, to have a meal with someone that might betray you. Of course, while David wrote this of his own experience, the Holy Spirit extrapolates this experience of David, turning it into a prophecy that would point to none other than a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, one who would do what? Betray Jesus, and the big betrayal after many meals that he had with Jesus, but the big one would be at that Last Supper, right? The one with whom uh, has dipped his bread into uh, the cup, this one will betray me. Jesus, or Judas, would be the one who was cold and calculated enough to do all of that while eating with Jesus. When Jude has, it, what Jude has in view then is that the sin of an apostate is aggravated by the fact that he will use any and every means at his disposal to profess a oneness, to come alongside, to put his hand around you and, and to say, I'm your best buddy. I want to, to put on a good show that we are in union together. There will be hearty fellowship, and they would seek to demonstrate this at a love feast. You see, it's hard, isn't it, when you sit here in, in the worship service, you greet some people as you come in. That's a good thing. You might have a couple of small talk things. Maybe you get into a brief moment of something. You pray for me for this. But ultimately, this doesn't reflect deep fellowship. This is worship. And these folks experienced a, a time where after the worship, they engaged with one another, and they did so after a meal. Now, Jude says of these apostates that they are hidden reefs in your love feast. Now, the phrase hidden reefs speaks of a ledge of rocks or a reef that lays just, before, just below the surface of the sea. If you've ever been uh, anywhere near the ocean, you can uh, perhaps say you've seen some of that. I know that if you've ever been on Beaver Lake, Beaver Lake goes up and down, you know, and I, I'd go out on a boat and you'd have to be careful that there wouldn't be some sandbar that you would end up hitting because you couldn't quite see it. Well, these were worse because they were made out of, of rock. And these hidden reefs were dangerous to ships that could run into them unawares, unnoticed, didn't know that they were there until it was too late, and it would rip open the hole of the ship, and it would cause the vessel to sink. Jude is painting a picture that apostates are not just something you tolerate in the church. They must be exposed. They must be, uh, we must be uh, those who are seeking to, to flesh them out so that they do not rip a hole in the hole of the, of the church, as it were. Already in his day, the, such apostates were effectively wreaking havoc upon 
church gatherings during the love feast as described here, which were to be an integral part of the expression of the saints' love and affection and union with one another. Such love feasts, uh, at such love feasts, those believers with financial means would, would often relieve the needs of the poor. All within the congregation, from the richest to the poorest, from the, the most learned to, to the most ignorant, from those who were masters to those who were slaves, all shared in the same worship, all partook of the same meal together. Those who had fallen away from the faith sought to take advantage of such gatherings, passing themselves off as faithful members in good standing of the body of Christ. I know I've shared the illustration a long time ago, so some of you may recall it, but I remember getting a phone call one time of a guy that said, I'm very interested in your church, is wondering if we could get together uh, for lunch, and, uh, and I'd like to just know a little bit more about the church and, and, and such. And, of course, the pastor, what? yeah, let's do it. So I met him over at uh, Colton Steakhouse. A little, uh, this was l many years ago, so this is like a big step for a pastor of a little church, and I met him at Colton's, and we ordered, and he was very kind, very, uh, very uh, articulate, a nice guy, said all the right things, we're having this meal and, uh, and such, and he's asking all these questions about the church, and then the ticket comes, and, and the uh, waitress says, of course, the question is, is this uh, going to be together or separate? And he looked at me, and he said, I forgot my wallet at, the, at my hotel, and I said, okay, don't worry about it, I'll get it, and uh, I, I paid for the meal, and on the way out, I could tell he was done with me. He had simply conned me out of a meal and had no intention of coming to the church or whatever. Well, that's what these kind of people do. They, they come alongside and they say the right things. They're just taking advantage for some personal purpose, for some personal benefit. This is what we saw Judas Iscariot doing amongst the 12. Uh, he was doing all the right things, saying all the right things. And Jesus often, do you recall about Judas Iscariot? He would often tell the disciples that there's one among you that's a devil. There's one among you that, that will betray me. And the apostles were horrified when Jesus would say this over and over and indicated that Judas was the traitor. Surely not Judas, they said. Judas had developed a, a reputation. Guess what he did? He cared for the poor. He had uh, cared so often for the poor that when he slipped out of the upper room with the Lord's ominous statement, what you are about to do, do quickly, the disciples were like, well, he must be running a mission of mercy for Jesus. It's like, you're not listening. They're not paying attention. They thought the Lord had sent Judas on some other legitimate matter of business, some secret errand. But through it all, Judas was a traitor. And this is the case of apostates. He, and even as Judas was willing to sell Christ out for his own benefit, so apostates are willing to deny Christ, to sell out the church, to sell out anyone they can if it means their own well-being. Jude says that such apostates feast with you without fear. The word feast there means partaking of good food with entertainment. I mean, this is a, uh, I know some of the ladies in, in my family went to the Branson Showboat, right? That's a, that's a feast. Is that not a feast? You eat good food and there's a show. That's the idea here. There's good food with entertainment. The Amplified Bible says it this way. 
where they, bold, uh, where they boldly feast sumptuously, carousing in your midst. The word feast can also mean to revel. It can mean to take hearty delight. And the point Jude is making is that apostates spare no expense. They'll, make, they'll be the ones who uh, want to be your friends. They're the ones that are seeking to influence others. They put on this outward mask of goodness and hearty fellowship. And Jude says they do it without fear. They're, they're confident. They're, they're, they're quite sure who they are and what they are doing. But Jude goes on to say, and very interestingly, that they are ultimately only caring for themselves. And I wish the translation was a little bit more accurate here because the word caring could rightly be translated pastoring or shepherding. It's the same word as, as what a pastor is to do, to shepherd the flock of God. But rather than caring for the flock of God, who do they care for? They care only them for themselves. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of the shepherds who basically uh, steal from the rest of the congregation. That's what these men were doing. Rather than caring for the flock, they cared only for themselves. They were not there to worship God or to give to others. They are there to manipulate others to satisfy their own desires. Beloved, apostates pretend to care. They pretend to be leaders, but they are actually false prophets they are careless captains ready to run the ship of faith upon the hidden reefs of destruction. Now, all of this is to say that apostates are dangerously deceptive. Such persons take advantage of the unsuspecting, passing themselves off as actually caring for others. They are smugly sure of themselves. And I would say that in some sense, they're even deceiving themselves at times into thinking, hey, I'm actually doing some good when actually they are steering themselves towards one thing, the very judgment of God. Now, you say, okay, pastor, this is all fine. But what does that have to do with me? I'm a blood-bought saint. I'm not an apostate. I have no intention of falling away, and I, and I pray that that be so. I, I pray that that is true for all of us. So while I hope that we do not have apostates among us, I do want to remind you, that it's yet possible for us to be influenced by apostate teaching, to pick up some of these attitudes and actions. We need to examine our own hearts and ask questions like these. Do I come to church to worship God and to serve others in the body of Christ for the glory of God? Or do I come as some kind of show? Do I come to make others think well of me for showing up? Do I come to impress others with my own presence rather than pointing others to Christ? To see what I can get out of others rather than what I need to glean and practice from hearing God's word. Beloved, I would say that there are times that we might come to church. Well, we'll borrow from the old translation, poor and needy. We know that we need something. But are you here to receive from the Lord or are you here to, to simply manipulate people into one of these fulfilling one of these purposes. When my children were growing up, my wife and I made a pact never to call our kids stupid or dumb. Don't call your kids stupid or dumb. Of course, this does not mean that they didn't do some stupid things or dumb things. And so our response would be, would not be, why are you so stupid? But rather we would say, don't act stupid. Because you know better. There are times when some of us may wander from the faith. 
And in those times, our first response for calling such people back ought not to be, you're an apostate, but it ought to be more like, do not act like an apostate, you know better. But even that is not at the heart of what I'd like to exhort you on this matter. For all I describe to you here <coughs> is that we examine uh, that that we ourselves are looking at the failings of others, right? I'm, I'm looking for the possible apostates in, in the congregation. I'm, I'm looking at you, you know, it's the whole I'm watching you kind of syndrome. What I would exhort you is to examine yourself first and to answer the questions of your relationship to Christ, to answer whether you truly are participating with the saints because apostates fall away are you connected why do you do such things who is it for is it for the glory of christ as we asked is it for the building up of the church or is it for the satisfaction of your own wants or desires this latter consideration would be acting like an apostate and where there are apostates among the congregation or merely those who are acting like apostates they will be dangerously deceptive ready to rip apart the unity and fellowship of a congregation. And we ought to say, Lord, surely not I, surely not I. May I never be the cause of ripping apart a congregation. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, one that I quote often, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Well, let's consider the second attribute that Jude describes. He says that apostates are not only dangerously deceptive, he says that apostates ultimately are deeply disappointing. They're a bummer, okay? They are clouds without water carried along by winds. Now, Jude, again, is painting some vivid pictures for us, and he's wanting us to imagine in our mind's eye a dry and thirsty land that is longing for rain. The earth is hot and baked hard as iron. The sky is filled with the yellow heat of the sun and dust blows across the surface. The vegetation is turning brown. Such land needs refreshment. The thirst must be quenched. Then off in the distance, there's a glimmer of hope. And all the eyes of those around look upon the cloud that's in the sky. Those in need of rain see the cloud as an angel of God. They watch as the cloud begins to grow and spread and brings the welcome relief of shade. It brings some momentary cooling. It brings with what? A promise to relieve the parched soil. And so the people pray and the livestock lift their weary heads and the shriveled flowers and the, and the leaves of the tree begin to long for that rain. But the cloud that they see is a cheat. The cloud that seems to bring a glimmer of promise is but a heartless con artist. It forms with the hope of promise, and then they watch it as it fades and drifts away, giving way to the heat of the sun once again. Such is the deep disappointment of clouds without rain, carried along by winds. And sadly, I believe that this is a picture of what is taking place far too often in too many churches. 
There are people sitting in the pews like you are, longing for refreshment and thinking that they're about to get it. I finally come. My week has been crazy. The news is outrageous. And I come to the church and I need the refreshing truth of God's word. And yet those people leave empty and dry. Like clouds in the sky, apostates seem so far above the ordinary, unsuspecting people who come to hear what they have to say. And as we have noted, apostates are generally charming. They're witty, they're eloquent, and can quote scripture. But at the heart of the problem is that the apostate substitutes human reasoning for divine revelation. And they fill their messages with anecdotes and stories and all sorts of, of uh, positive vibes and phrases meant to kind of be cheering you on. And he becomes nothing more than a cheerleader to kind of help you through the week again. They exchange the conviction of the Holy Spirit for psychology. They exalt good works in the place of saving faith. If looked at carefully, you will notice that they offer up to you a mutilated Bible rather than an inspired, inerrant, infallible scripture from the very mouth of God. And so the thirsty people come to those churches and, and they earnestly desire to have life, a life-reviving shower, and yet they look to such persons in vain. Rather than point people to Christ who said in John 7, 37 through 38, if anyone is thirsty, is that you? I pray you're thirsty when you come. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Not to the preacher, not to the stories. Come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Apostate teachers fill their followers with empty and spiritually hollow words. I like to describe it as they're offering you a diet of spiritual Twinkies over and over again. Twinkies in the morning, Twinkies at lunch, Twinkies at night, Twinkies when the sun goes down. Can you survive off Twinkies? Kathy Hader would say no. <laughs> you can't. I mean, you could for a while, but you're filling your body with nothing. You're giving your body absolutely nothing. And so they provide those, those hollow words over and over again until a sort of spiritual diabetes sets in and malnutrition takes hold of the soul. And what people need, according to the word of God, is not shallow platitudes, but the solid food of the word of God. Yet apostates have nothing to offer except those spiritual Twinkies, nothing to offer to their thirsty congregations but the driest of crackers to those who are thirsting in their souls. They are those who are themselves. There are those who are themselves and, and bring others along to, uh, with them to be in the words of Ephesians 4.14, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind 
of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. They're dangerously deceptive, and they are as well. Um, where am I? <laughs> um, uh, disappointing, deeply disappointing. By way of application, how do you apply this? What's the point for us this morning? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Have you thirsted for the truth of the gospel message that he brought? Have you come and do you come to Jesus for drink? Or do you go to YouTube? Do you go to your, your, your therapist? Do you go to, to anyone else, any other source? Or do you go to Christ? You ask, how can I know if my thirst has been quenched? I ask again, have you believed on Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Meaning that you have come to see yourself as a wretched sinner who has been hostile and rebellious against God and his ways, fully deserving the punishment of hell. But then to behold, to behold the man upon the cross, to behold Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away your sin, he having become your substitute on the cross upon which he died, he who took your punishment on the cross that you deserved, and he who grants you the right, the privilege of his own righteousness so that you might have right to take hold of God, fit for heaven, filled with the waters of hope. How can you know if you have believed in Jesus? Do you have the soul-refreshing living waters of hope, peace, and joy welling up within you this morning if not why not if you say I, I know I believe but the well seems to be trickling then let us pray that the sin that that needs to be removed so that that the fountain might flow again pray that that might be removed how can you know if you've believed in Jesus do you take that living water that now wills up inside of you and do you would offer it to others who are thirsty? Do you want to know if you have the living waters within you? How freely do you share the living waters that are within you with others? For to the extent that you share the gospel, the living waters of Jesus Christ with another, to that is the extent that you have quenched your own thirst. A thirsty man who's dying of thirst doesn't offer someone else to drink, but one who has quenched his thirst and has plenty to share will say, here, come and drink. Do you preach the gospel to others? Do you point others to Christ? Do not be a cloud without rain. I fear that we can be clouds that bring promise to our neighbors, bring promise to our, our family members, bring promise to those that we might come in contact with. But if we fail to share the gospel, we are clouds without rain. Now, you may not feel like a massive thunderhead that can just drench the land with, with inches and inches of water, but, beloved, you are not called to be a thunderhead. You're called to be whatever God has called you to be. But I will tell you, if I can use the analogy, you are called to be a rain cloud. Read the word. Pray earnestly without ceasing. 
and then pray, God, make me, enable me to pour out anything and everything that I can to those who are thirsty. Pray this prayer. Lord, make me a cloud with water that I might pour out the living water with those who are thirsty. Well, not only has Jude reminded us that apostates are dangerously deceptive, not only are they deeply disappointing, but they are doubly dead. Notice verse again in verse 12. They are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Let us never forget that apostates, regardless of how spiritually sounding they may be, are actually spiritually dead beings. Jude says they are doubly dead. Now, this is a great time of year, and I know at this time of year, apple trees are uh, generally, they, they produce their fruit in late summer and, and early fall. What could be more uh, wonderful than partaking of fruit in its season? But what could be more disappointing than coming to a tree, expecting to find fruit on it, and only to find that it's barren? Jude describes such trees as being doubly dead, which is an interesting phrase. What does this mean? Well, it means that they are dead the first time as children of Adam's ruined race. They are born, the scripture says, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 reminds us that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. I'm reminded, I believe it was D. Martin, Laurie Jones, who, and it might have been James Montgomery Boyce, I guess it's irrelevant, some great old preacher who's dead, <laughs> said of this verse that people are like spiritual zombies. They look alive, but they're actually what? They're dead. So they're dead the first time because they're, they're in their sins and trespasses. And they're dead a second time because when confronted with the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, they reject it. They renounce it. And, and they move themselves as far away as they can from the truth of the gospel. A question that came up in our home Bible fellowship, an interesting one that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, can an apostate be saved? Can an apostate be saved? And that question is not as easy to answer as you might think. It presupposes that we can know the full heart of an apostate person. We, we might ask, could Judas, the son of perdition, the one who was destined to perish, have been saved? In Judas' case, it would appear to us that he was so dead set in his falling away from Christ that even scripture foretold of his betrayal. Was there no chance for Judas? Beloved, what God has determined in his own secret counsel, we cannot know. What we can know is what's revealed to us in the scripture. And this is what we know, that if a person repents and calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation, he will be saved end of story and so we must preach the gospel what's my point i'm not here to try to determine whether i think a particular apostate can or cannot be saved if i have the opportunity to preach the word of god to him i will preach the word of god to him and pray god will have mercy on his soul 
And so we preach the gospel to apostates. We preach the gospel to heretics. We preach the gospel to those who are lost in their sin because are we not all in that same boat? Were we not once also like them? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. With all that said, it would appear that there are those who are so far into their sin, as was Judas, that they simply will never call upon the name of the Lord. The offer of salvation is still available to them. Repentance could be theirs if they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but their hearts are so hardened by sin's deceitfulness that they will not repent, and God knows who such persons are. You and I do not know who they are, and so we faithfully proclaim the gospel to all creation. We are to be clouds with living water, raining the gospel upon all, and praying that the Holy Spirit would use it to sprout the seeds of faith within the souls of those to whom we share. With all this said, however, full apostates, whom God knows, will be uprooted, the text says. Such persons are not only dead twice, but to be uprooted would reflect that they're doubly dead and they're damned. If they will not and they cannot produce fruit, they will be uprooted. Now, can you see where the application's going here? Anyone who cannot and will not produce fruit will be uprooted. So what's the question? Do you see fruit in your life? Because if you are professing Christ, if you're part of the love feast, and you are not exhibiting fruit, then you are a type of apostate. Because the fruit must be present. In Matthew 15, 13, Jesus addresses such people, and he says this, Listen well, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. In that context, Jesus was referring to the Pharisees. And what had the Pharisees done? They were religious looking. They were religious sounding. They were the respected people. They were the religious leaders. But they had rejected who? Christ and his teachings. They were not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. The doom of apostates who, like the Pharisees, reject all the major New Testament doctrines concerning Christ and distort his teachings is certain. They will be uprooted in God's time. Do not think you can sit in the pew and sit in the chair and hear the preaching and say, this isn't going to apply to me. This isn't me. Yes, it is you. If there is no fruit, you will be uprooted. You are doubly dead. Well, next Jude says that such apostates are dreadfully destructive. He calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. I grew up near the beach in Southern California. I've had times when I could personally witness the waves crashing upon the shore and the rocks of a beach, particularly because of a storm. The power of those waves is is an amazing thing. The ocean in which I might have previously gone out and body surfed, even maybe with a couple of dolphins, I would dare not dare not step foot in because of the treacherous nature of that uh, of those uh, waves 
The ocean would be filled with huge and wild waves. You could see them cresting with foam and crashing on the shore with almost what seems to be invincible power. The effects of such winds and waves on the shoreline can be dreadfully destructive, changing the very contours of the beach, and if high enough, could damage and even completely demolish buildings along the coast. I've been out on fishing boats where we had, and it makes me sick to think about it, 20 to 30 foot swells. You know what that means? About at least twice as high as this, uh, this peak here, the boat goes up and the boat goes down, and it's just going up and it's going down. And you would see the crest of some of those waves, and you wonder if they're going to crash into or crash onto the boats. It's a little bit unnerving. Now, I never was in a very violent sea. These were just 20 to 30-foot swells with some, some foam on the top, but I would hate to see an angry sea and be in a ship like that. But this is how Jude describes apostates. They are dangerous because they are dreadfully destructive. Jude calls them what? Wild waves. What a word, wild waves. The word wild means untamed, raging, violent, furious, like an unbroken horse. The word could also be translated fierce or savage. The ancient physicians used this word wild to describe the appearance and effects of a malignant wound, one that they know would kill someone. This, beloved, is how the Holy Spirit says, describes apostates. Once in a church, once in a seminary, such apostates turn their angry waves of unorthodox teachings and practices in order to destroy. But Jude does not describe them only as being wild. He says they're wild, but they also are casting up their own shame. Literally, it's shames or their stains like foam. The verb casting up occurs here and only here, but it comes from a root verb meaning to foam at the mouth. It's like a person having an epileptic seizure and the foam is coming out of their mouth. Again, the picture is of something violent. It's something not pretty. It's leaving a mark. If you visit a beach after a storm, you will often find what is the scummy stuff. It's a scummy foam that's been produced by the, the waves up on the sand, and it's just sitting there, and it gets all sticky and nasty as it dries in the sun. It serves as a reminder of the wildness and the destruction that had been. Some of us have seen the remnants of such destruction in individual lives, we may know of some young man who desired to go into ministry, and yet he chose a liberal seminary, which trained him not to be a preacher of the truth of God's word, but rather trains him to such an extent that he comes out as a religious agnostic by which his own faith is ruined, and now he stands behind a pulpit and ruins the faith of others. Jude says such apostates are casting up their shame. Literally, in the Greek, they're casting up all their shames. The word expresses a sense of, of disgrace that generally follows when a person has done some dishonorable deed. You've done that before, right? You know you did something dishonorable, and you feel that shame. That's what's being described. The Apostle Paul uses the word to describe in reference to genuine believers in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, saying, but we have renounced the, hidden, the things hidden because of shame. 
the things, the doing of those things that bring a sense of shame and guilt. Believers don't want to be doing things that are going to bring that that sense of that nasty, scummy foam, leaving that residue that we've destroyed something. In contrast, Paul describes apostates in Philippians 3.19 as those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. They glory in the scum. They glory in the destruction. They glory in anything other than what God's word has says because they set their minds, Paul says, on earthly things. That's not sufficient for you. The Lord Jesus had something to say about it. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, the Lord Jesus exhorting those in the Laodicean church uh, and who those uh, persons who had imagined themselves to be rich and having become wealthy and have need of nothing, they would not sing, come ye sinners poor and needy. They would say, we're saints and we don't need anything, not even Christ. In saying, Jesus said that in reality they were what? Wretched and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. The remedy Jesus gives is to what? To come to him. Come to him so that you may be clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness, the shame of spiritual bankruptcy, the shame of being involved in those things which God says are sinful and hurtful to you, they will not be revealed. In Jude 13, such apostates foam out their shame, and it infects and diseases all those who are influenced by them. Such apostates have all lost all sense of what is right and wrong, thus destroying the faith they, they say they proclaim to uphold. Well, this brings us to our last description. Our last description. Not only are apostates dangerously deceptive and deeply disappointing and doubly dead and dreadfully destructive, but finally... They are determinedly, determinedly doomed. He describes them at the end of verse 13 as wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude likens apostates to wandering stars. Those who are destined, he says, for black darkness that's been reserved, it's been determined, it's been destined for them. In our text, Jude is not referencing traditional stars. He's not talking about the sun or, or other stars we see in abundance in the night sky. Such are ordinary stars. Such stars obey the decree of God as they are set in the heavens, according to Genesis 1.14, as signs for seasons and for days and for months and years. What Jude refers to here, he calls wandering stars. The word wander, uh, the word Wander, wandering is the Greek word planetes, from which we get our English word planet. And it literally means a wanderer, a stray, a rover, a erratic mover. We get, again, that English word planet from this. According to early astronomers, they noted that the majority of stars were fixed in the heavens. But they took notice that there were others that they could see wandering through the night sky. And so they gave them this term. They were called planets, the, the wanderers. Again, this isn't exactly what, what Jude's getting after, but we're working after that. He says they are these uh, wandering stars. The word for star is aster. Again, the stars, non-wandering stars, were created by God, appointed in their courses, given names, and counted according to Psalm 147, verse 4. What Jude appears to be referring to 
with this term wandering stars, though, is not fixed stars, not planets, but rather shooting stars. He's referencing meteors that flash across the sky, sometimes with great brilliance. If you ever are out in the night sky and you happen to see one, what do you, what's the first thing you do? Did you see it? Did you see it? You want people to, to take note. It is, it's different. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. It's there, and it burns out, and it disappears into what? Black darkness. This is how Jude describes apostates. They are like shooting stars that have no fixed position. They, they come out of nowhere. They pop up for a moment. They, they are erratic. Sometimes they can be the most brilliant thing in the sky, but they are ultimately short-lived. God has determined for them the black darkness. In other words, there is no future for those except everlasting darkness. How can we imagine a more horrific destiny than to dwell in a darkness chosen by one's own sinfulness while living, seeking to spread such a darkness to others, leading them into the same dark abyss, to die in the darkest of darkness, destined to exist forever in a dreadful, dark dungeon of damnation. That's what Jude is driving at. Now, I would submit that there's a sort of poetic justice described in these words by Jude. Those who willfully turn from the light of God's truth, those who willfully seek to lead others into such spiritual darkness are themselves, according to our text, destined to be consigned to the horrors of eternal black darkness. Well, what Jude 12 and 13 reveal to us then are these general attributes of apostates. They are dangerously deceptive, deeply disappointing, doubly dead, dreadfully destructive, and determinedly doomed. I think there's that a screen for that. The apostates Jude speaks of in this letter are false teachers who are nothing more than hypocritical deceivers. They are immoral sinners. They are materialistic hedonists. They are ultimately spiritual terrorists. They represent a genuine threat to the church. They misrepresent the truth concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, true followers of Christ's church must rightly know and accurately proclaim the gospel. We are to possess a high view of Christ. We are to be possessing a humble, submissive spirit to the lordship of Christ. We are to be those who grasp the seriousness and the wonder of the words, the words that we proclaim so often, but may you hear them as if you've never heard them before. The seriousness of the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You cannot come through the false teachings of a church. You do not come through the, 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 the teachings of, a, of a, an apostate. We are not to succumb to the temptation to add to Jesus anything, not anything of ourselves, not anything of this world. It is to be of Christ and Christ alone. And so I ask you, have you come to Jesus alone, apart from your works? Uh, again, I, we quote it so often, but Jonathan Edwards so rightly said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. 
That's all you get to bring. That's how wretched we are. So it has to be apart from our works, apart from what some spiritual guru has said would be the path of our enlightenment. Do you come to Jesus alone? Do you come to him in your hard times? Do you come to him in your heartaches? Do you come to him in your triumphs and your successes? Again, common quote from this pulpit, Charles Spurgeon, who said, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. I ask you, is that true for you today? O wretched sinner, will you not see that Christ is everything? And he begins by being Lord and Savior. He begins by calling you to repent. He begins by calling you to humble yourself before him with this promise for you, that if you do humble yourself and cry out for salvation, he will lift you up. You will be saved. O believer, where do you need to see Christ as not, where do you see Christ as not yet being everything to you? What do you still hold on to? What vestiges of your sinful flesh, what, what delights of this world have preoccupied you? I say to you, give up your pride. Give up the fullness of your heart unto him. Let him truly come to have first place in everything in your life. Why? Why would I call you to do that? Because such will keep you from the path of apostasy. Such will be peace and confidence and delight to your soul. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for these words that remind us of the ultimate doom of those who would fall away from you, the living God. And Father, I pray that we would take heed to the scripture that says that we as a congregation are to see to it that no one has a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Father, I pray for those who are listening, that if they've come to recognize that they are not believing, that they have not bore fruit, even though they professed perhaps to know Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. Have them cry out to you. Have them call out for salvation and hear their cry and change their hearts. Father God, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people who desire to not see any of these characteristics be manifested within us or within our congregation. Father God, I pray that we would be a people who lovingly examine ourselves, who lovingly encourage one another to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name.